Just a note at the beginning of the program here, uh, thanks for tuning in to Access Utah. Uh, my fascinating conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning author Richard Russo, uh, which follows, was recorded uh, last week. We're grateful that Richard Russo gave us uh, some time ahead of his event at the King's English Bookshop later this week. So we won't be uh, taking phone calls during this hour. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. One beautiful September day, three men convene on Martha's Vineyard, friends ever since meeting in college circa the 60s. It couldn't have been more different then or even today. Lincoln is a commercial real estate broker, Teddy a tiny press publisher, Mickey a musician beyond his rockin' age. Each man holds his own secrets, in addition to the monumental mystery that none of them has ever stopped puzzling over since a Memorial Day weekend right here on the Vineyard, 1971, the disappearance of the woman each of them loved, J.C. Rockefeller. Now, more than 40 years later, as this new weekend unfolds, three lives are displayed in their entirety, while the distant past confounds the present like a relentless squall of surprise and discovery. It's the uh, plot in brief of the new novel from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo. The new book is Chances Are. Richard Russo is author of eight novels, including Everybody's Fool and That Old Cape Magic, two collections of stories, the memoir Elsewhere. In 2002, he received the Pulitzer Prize for Empire Falls, which, like Nobody's Fool, was adapted to film in a multiple award-winning HBO miniseries. Richard Russo will be in Salt Lake City on this Friday, 7 p.m., at the King's English Bookshop for reading and uh, book signing. Richard Russo, uh, welcome to the program. Well, it's great to be here, Tom. So this one, um, it's uh, friendships. That's an ongoing theme, uh, class uh, divisions. Uh, this particular book uh, is a mystery as well. That's that's somewhat new. Uh, did you know going in you wanted to write a mystery? Um, no. Um, as a matter of fact, if I had if I if I had known I was going to be writing a thriller, <laughs> I might have I might have thought twice um, about it because you know the book is a little bit um, outside my my normal wheelhouse. Um, although what I what I did kind of what I did kind of know uh, was that this book would have would be a little bit more tightly structured. Um, a lot of my books are fairly freewheeling. I I I let my characters tell me what the book is about. Um, and there are generally kind enough to do that. Um, in this book, though, um, this is a book about secrets and um, and lies. And if you're if you that which means you're gonna which means you're gonna have have a, a bit more plot um, than normal. And so as I as I began to discover um, exactly what these characters um, what what their secret lives. We're all about. Um, it became it became necessary to figure out how uh, information was going to be dispensed by the reader because if you tell everybody up front um, what what the secrets are, that doesn't work very well. So very soon, I found myself plotting uh, in a way that would reveal um, certain things, uh, would reveal information, dole it out in in small uh, in small doses. That's what I love. What I love most about thrillers, although the, although I do usually don't write those, both movies, if we're talking about movies or 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 uh, television or in book form, um, I really kind of like the slow burn, if you know what I mean. You know, where mm-hmm. where in, instead of instead of um, 
beginning the book um, on a on a roller coaster ride. Um, you begin with uh, the doling out of information, and certain things don't quite add up, and the reader begins to get a little bit nervous, and then other things don't kind of add up, and they get more nervous. And suddenly, and 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 suddenly, um, you know, everything everything about the book you think you think certain things are at stake, and then you realize that 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 um, that actually there's more at stake than you imagined until until finally you find yourself in kind of a in kind of a gripping and and relentless situation. That's what that's what I like about good thrillers and movies and TV, and that's what I. Also, what I like about them in um, in fiction. So you're writing about uh, three friends here, really four, because JC, uh, you know, is yeah. uh, appears through the, the the memories, the feelings that all three have for her. Um, so these are friends; these are old friends. Um, I don't know the stakes higher there with old friends. Well, I think so, um, especially when their friendships are defined. Um, the way they are in in this book, these are these are. I mean, there's a lot about chance in this book, and chances. The tense, the title, chances are. Um, but there are a lot of moving parts um, to this particular friendship. Um, and, and you know, you you mentioned class before, and all my works have a component of of class uh, in them. And in this case, um, part of the basis for this for this friendship. Uh, is class oriented in that that um, they they all um, they all go to this same uh, shishi um, uh, very expensive uh, liberal arts college on the coast of Connecticut and of course what all three of these young men at the time what all three of them have in common is that in terms of class none of the three really belong there um, none of them have anything like a safety net. Uh, they don't come from wealth, and they're being introduced to to a world um, that is entirely uh, entirely new to them. And so they become uh, they become friends. They think of themselves as the three musketeers, um, all for one and one for all. Um, and and that's partly uh, as a result of of the of the fact that um, all the other or most of the other students are, who are in that college have parents who can afford the staggering tuition. Um, and who come from money, and who have certain expectations about what money can and cannot buy, um, none of which Lincoln and and uh, and Teddy and Mickey have any experience of. So there are those so there are those class issues that that bind them together uh, when they are when they are young men, and since you know all three have had um, really interesting lives. Those lives have not ended in riches, and so when they when they come together again um, at uh, at at sixty six, they find that some of those bonds have been tested, but they're but they're still powerful and strong, um, in, in kind of the way that they are. I mean, I grew up uh, in 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 the same situation as all of these young men. Um, I didn't have any certainly didn't have any family safety net. Um, and um, as a result of the various blessings that I've had as a as a published author and a and a prize winner, my life has has gotten 
um, easier now than it certainly was when I was when I was growing up. But um, if you've spent um, a considerable portion of your life without money, you never kind of lose that orientation. If, you, if that make any sense, mm-hmm. that even if you even even when your life has gotten easier and you have a little bit more money in the bank, um, and life life has taught you that that it, that in addition to going badly at times, it can also go very well, and you can be very fortunate, and you can be very blessed. Um, those um, those early experiences of 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 not having um, uh, not coming from wealth, uh, not being able to. Um, to depend upon other people if you make bad decisions, that that sense of the world never entirely goes away, or at least it, certain ha- it certainly hasn't for me. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, it's just a thumbnail sketch of each of these three. Maybe we'll start with Lincoln, Lincoln Moser. He's the person who owns that house that they're uh, gathering uh, at. He, he's the person who organized this get-together. Yeah, Lincoln. Lincoln comes from a part of all three of these characters. Actually, come from a part of a part of my own um, personality. Things that I've thought about, uh, uh, choices that I've made at various times in my life. Lincoln is of the of the three friends. He is the most conservative, and when I say conservative, I mean both both politically and kind of emotionally. Um, uh, politically, he is he is the uh, the lifelong Republican uh, of the party. Of, of the of the uh, uh, of the three, um, he lives out west. Uh, he is the son of uh, a man who was part owner in a mostly played out copper mine in in Arizona. But his mother, who is a very very quiet, circumspect, obedient woman in her marriage, has inherited um, this this cottage on Martha's Vineyard. And it's the one thing that she has. She refuses to turn over to her husband. Uh, she bequeaths this this property, which has increased in value over the years, um, uh, almost exponentially, as the as as the as the island has become more famous and and shishi. Uh, and Lincoln um, uh, and Lincoln has inherited this uh, this property. And the book kind of begins with him arriving there, unfortunately, as a result of the economic downturn, the great recession, uh, going there thinking that he's going to have to sell this property. So that's, that's Lincoln. Um, Teddy is, Teddy is the son of, of high school English teachers. Um, and (laughs) as he, uh, as he puts it, their lives were full of kids before he ever came along. And, and, um, they can barely find time for him uh, when uh, you know um, amongst their classes and their students and their paper grading and and Teddy Teddy grows up um, um, you know you know he he's kind of one kid too many <laughs> uh, and so and so he is and 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 like Teddy even as he as 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 I was at his age I was profoundly interested very early. Uh, in girls before I before I had you know the, the necessary courage to even talk to them, uh, much less much less ask for a date. Um, that was me, and 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 that's that's Teddy in his in his inner life. He's he's very interested, but also like me, he has at at that age. I had a I suppose a, a religious or spiritual side. I was an altar boy, 
uh, right up, straight, straight up through high school. And so even as I was flirting with the idea of, of being a ladies' man, I was also flirting with the idea of, of, of being, uh, um, you know, if not a, if not a priest, having, having some sort of large spiritual component in my life. Uh, and that's, that's kind of Teddy's origins. Um, Mickey uh, is, in some ways, the simplest, kind of psychologically, of, of these three characters, um, because he really has only one desire in life, uh, and that is to play rock and roll. Um, uh, I just turned 70, um, um, but even at that age, if the right song comes on the radio, I have but one desire, and that's to strap on an electric guitar, plug it into an amp, uh, and play uh, and play rock and roll music. And I, I did that as a young man, uh, played in a band, and when I was in college, um, I put myself in part through graduate school um, playing and uh, uh, playing 12-string guitar in, in bars. So Mickey, Mickey draws on that other aspect of, uh, of my younger life. Mickey is in some ways the least changed, right? He's still rocking out at that at that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and music, of course, plays a very, very large part um, in this book. Um, and it's it's largely it's largely through through Mickey, whose sense of identity, uh, much more than Lincoln's or Teddy's, is is really located in in music. And so, a song like "Chances Are," which which gives the title to this book, the Johnny Mathis uh, song, um, is of course much made fun of and much derided, as is Teddy's and and uh, and and Lincoln's musical taste. But in this in the song, chances are there's there's one magical night when these three friends are together back in 1971, when um, even Mickey has to appreciate the schmaltzy lyrics. Of chances are, because what all three of these young men and the girl that they are all three profoundly uh, over their heads in love with, they they despite the times the Vietnam War is raging. Mickey has a very low um, draft number, and it looks like he will be heading off to Southeast Asia within probably months. Um, but there's this one night that all three of these young men and this beautiful wild child young woman um um come together uh and 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 in and in the dark night on this deck of this house in house in Martha's Vineyard sing the lyrics to chances are because all four of them want so desperately to believe that their chances are awfully awfully good as the song says mm. um and throughout um but so that song kind of haunts the novel um as does as does my beloved Grace Slick, <laughs> who's, <laughs> who, uh, who signals the theme of the novel um, uh, in, her, in her lyric from the famous Jefferson Airplane song, Somebody to Love, When the Truth is Found to be Lies, and All the Joy Within You Dies. So, so Mickey, we get, a lot of, we get an awful lot of mileage out of, uh, out of the music of the, of the late 60s and early 70s <laughs> in this book, and and Mickey, of course, gets to deride uh, so much of contemporary music, which was also fun. Yeah, he he uh, 
he thumbs through uh, Lincoln's playlist, right, and makes fun of all the songs. Uh, that's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he later, yeah, he makes he makes he makes fun of um, uh, of, of of the various Pandora playlists that that Lincoln has on his phone. And later on, he Teddy's Teddy's um, uh, Teddy's uh, musical interests right now are much more are much more contemporary. Um, and Lincoln offers to cure his Mumford and Sons disorder, as he calls it, <laughs> right. <laughs> at one point in the novel. That's right. So yeah, you get to play with the with the old stuff and, and the new stuff as well. <laughs> so uh, JC, they're all three in love with JC back in the day. Um, yeah, so she still has a big impact in their lives, even though after that original uh, weekend, uh, you know, on Martha's Vineyard, she she disappeared. But she's still very much, in a way, part of this of this weekend, uh, all those years later. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, J.C. Yeah, it's 40, it's 45 years, it's 45 years later, or thereabouts, 44 years later, and this young woman still haunts them um, in a way that it's, it's, it probably would be much more difficult for her to do had she not disappeared. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, it, her disappearance is, is part of the reason that they continue to think about her, uh, um, so, so hauntingly for for so for so very long, and of course, um, you know these guys are now sixty six years old, um, the age I was when I started writing this book. Um, but these are now, um, um, you know, it's it's wrong really to call them middle aged men anymore. These are these are on the these guys are on the cusp of old age, and they. And they suffer from lower back pain, and they have to get up several times in the middle of the night to pee, and 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 all of that. But J.C. of course remains as young as she was when they saw her last, as young, as beautiful, as free, as vibrant, uh, as full of life. She hasn't aged, uh, and so they can still not only be still be kind of in love with her all this all this time later, but um, but. But she remains perfect um, by virtue of her disappearance, and so I mean, and it's also complicated by the fact that, of course, back in the day when they were all so thrillingly in love with her, they were not only in love with her, but they were in love with two other things. The first of which being the spirit of the times. This was this was not just a beautiful girl. This was a beautiful free girl uh, uh, who was this kind of the spirit of the early. 70s, the Woodstock generation. She's. Uh, I don't describe her um, an awful lot physically beyond the fact that she has curly dark hair and olive skin. Uh, but you know, like so many girls at the time, she goes around braless and and uh, and she's kind of free spirited uh, and 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 is kind of an emblem of what freedom meant to to young people, twenty um, somethings. Back in 1971, so, so, um, so she hasn't aged. She's still, she's still an emblem of freedom, even at even at a time when all three of these uh, young men, now old men, have learned something uh, about freedom and how difficult it is to hold on to as you age. Um, and she also, um, the second thing that's important about about J.C. is that not only have they fallen in love with her and what she represents in terms of freedom, but um, but also she's from Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, she's the girl who belongs at this college, whose parents can afford the staggering tuition, 
whereas these young men are all scholarship kids who have to sling hash in a sorority house to make things to make ends meet. JC um, JC comes from wealth. She comes from privilege. And these young guys are getting their first glimpse at a world that they know nothing about. So they fall in love with her, but they also fall in love with privilege, with wealth, of, of, of an easier, less, uh, less stressful life where, where doors um, seem magically uh, to open. And uh, so they're so they're in they're in love with her, but they're in love with Greenwich, Connecticut, and they're in love with this Minerva College that I invented, um, and all the and all the freedom and and uh, and and privilege that those things embody. You just joined us. We are talking with the Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, novelist Richard Russo. Uh, the new book is Chances Are, um, and it's a, a novel uh, set back in the seventies and. Um, closer to today, as uh, three, uh, three young men then, now older, uh, gather for uh, another weekend at Martha's Vineyard. Let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Richard Russo. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Sunshine Terrace Foundation, celebrating 70 years with our annual Sunshine Swing Lawn Party, featuring the Joe L. McQueen Jazz Quartet, Thursday, August 22nd from 6.30 to 9 p.m. at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms. Ticket information at sunshineterrace.org. Say you have a baby. Do you see the owl? You raise her with love. One day I'm going to be able to tell her, you can do this. Push yourself. The kid's going to turn out exactly as you planned, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hold on here. It would be nice if life was like that, but life isn't like that. Life is hard. Are we bound by our DNA, or can a parent change it? That's on the next Radio Lab. Join us today at 10 o'clock on UPR. How do we define and live with risk in unexpected places? You see a lot more populism when we live in uncertain times, and we are living in uncertain times now. I'm John Donvan. That's my guest, Alison Schrager, author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. Usually, if you visit a sex worker, there's a lot of risk involved. Disrupting the way we talk about risk on the next Intelligence Squared U.S. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author Richard Russo. The new novel is Chances Are. Richard Russo will be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City Friday evening at 7. That event is free and open to the public, and Richard Russo will be uh, reading for the book, uh, doing a book signing as well. Your opportunity to interact with Richard Russo. Um, King's English Bookshop, Salt Lake City, Friday evening, 7 o'clock. So Richard Russo, the Vietnam War, the draft, hovers over this this novel. Um, the, these three, of course, uh, were, were part of the draft, as every young man was. Um, and this gets into you, this theme of, of fate and how much do we control and how much is, is luck or fortune or, or God's will or whatever it might be. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. And I understand that you gave one of your characters your own draft number. Yeah, Teddy, the middle, uh, the middle of these three musketeers uh, gets the draft number uh, 322. That was mine. Um, and uh, I remember vividly um, 
that. I mean, that's this is really the the kind of the inspiration for uh, for this book uh, was that one evening uh, back in 1969, the first the first Vietnam uh, draft lottery. And I remember, uh, I don't think I could have given it words back then. I couldn't have articulated necessarily what I was feeling then, and and it's difficult even to articulate even now. But but I did have a profound sense that when we entered that room that night, as these as these young men do, um, because I was a hasher, I was out west at the University of Arizona, so I wanted to change all of that. But but I do remember that we. Uh, all the hashers, many of us who were in that lottery, um, we asked the house mother if we could, if we could stay later that night and and bring in a bring in a TV. There was this there was this small room in the back of the sorority house where those of us who who served dinner and 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 washed pots and all the stuff that you have to do in a kitchen, um, um, we asked if we could. If we could stay late and keep the room open and watch the draft lottery on a on a on a tiny black and white TV uh, with rabbit ears that had to be constantly adjusted, uh, and we were um, I remember that when when we went in when we went into the room there was a sense of um, uh, it was a jovial atmosphere but more importantly a sense that we were all in the same boat this was something that was happening not to uh, not to us as individuals but to all of us and being being 19 or 20 uh as we were um we we were able to think in our own minds we were part of our part of us knew that what was happening here was 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 serious not only serious but perhaps deadly serious lethally serious depending on what our numbers uh depending on the number we drew um uh the trajectory of our lives were all about to change but but also being 19 or 20 we thought, well, let's you know, since this is happening to us, we should bring beer, <laughs> you know, um, and I and we did. We brought we we brought um, we brought uh, six packs of beer and and loaded it up with ice. And as the and as the lottery uh, began with ping pong balls um, popping up uh, with 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 birth dates um, on them. Um, you know, we uh, we we popped our beers and and made terrible terrible jokes to each other. Uh, um, one of the one of the guys uh, I remember got the number nine, and I gave that I gave that number to uh, to Mickey. Um, and we made terrible we made terrible jokes uh, about about what was happening. But somewhere along the line, probably you know, fifty or sixty numbers in. The, the lethal seriousness of what was happening began to uh, began to take over, and um, you know uh, we began to we began to slip away. Those who had their numbers uh, began to slip away because they they wanted they needed um, to go home and and call their parents because they knew their parents were watching. Uh, this was <laughs> long before cell phones, uh, so they so they went on. We began to go home to our dorm rooms. Um, uh, uh, to call our parents. I remember I was there to the end because my number came so close to the end. But I remember vividly leaving, uh, leaving the, the, the Hasher room and walking across campus to the library where my girlfriend, then uh, and now wife of 47 years, um, was waiting for me 
to tell her, you know, my own uh, my own draft number, my own personal destiny. And by the time the evening was over, what we all realized was that we were not all for one and one for all. We were not. Um, yes, we were friends. Yes, we were great friends, and we understood the power of our friendships. But we didn't. But we weren't all in the same boat anymore. Some of us were in in very small, very leaky boats, and some of us uh, were in sturdier vessels, and some of us, like me, lucky on that day when I needed to be lucky, some of us were safely ashore. And that, for young men that age, that's, that's a pretty powerful realization. It's the kind of thing you can know intellectually but not emotionally. And one of the great things that's happening on this book tour, which I didn't anticipate, I might have, uh, but I didn't, is, um, is that on the road uh, now at the end of, of my, you know, readings and Q&As, when people come up to sign, get their books signed, um, you know, uh, person after person wants to tell me what their draft number was mm-hmm. and how it changed their lives. And not just guys, you know. Um, women um, want to tell me that, you know, about their brothers, and their fiancés, their 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 lovers, what what um, and, and, you know how 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 they waited to find out what what their uh, what the people they loved um, what what their what what their destiny was now going to be as a result uh, of the uh, of that draft lottery. One thing that really struck me, I was reading a, an interview with your publisher. You said your your number three twenty two, which which puts you in into safety, very very lucky number. Uh, that number has haunted you ever since. It has. Yeah, it 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 absolutely has. And um, I've allowed I've allowed some of that um, some of that haunting um, um, to creep into this book um, in in ways that um, were were difficult, but but that I'm very proud of actually um, because um, there's there's a scene in the book without giving too much away. Um, there's a scene in the book in which. Mickey's old man um, um, is um, he and his son are in a diner and and Mickey is is trying to explain to him that that and his father's a World War II veteran explaining to him the insanity of this war uh, and his father doesn't argue at all he says of course <laughs> we all we all know this is we all know this is crazy and we all know that nobody should go but his father says somebody's going to. And if not you, who? Um, and he, he challenges Mickey. He says, look, ar- look around this restaurant. Bunch of guys in here your age. Um, if you don't go, who do you think you should go? Show me the guy that you think should go. And, uh, you know, I, so, so, yeah, I got lucky. I got incredibly lucky. I, 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 I drew, uh, I drew that, that, that draft number that, that, put me in, that put me in safety. But I've always, and as I've gotten older, more and more, become more and more haunted by that, um, by that number. Um, and that's why this book is dedicated to those whose names are on the wall. Um, because, uh, you know, and I was in it kind of doubly like Mickey. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of, I kind of had, there were, there were two wars that were, that were kind of being fought in my psyche at the time. Um, there was the Vietnam War that was that was insane, that was based on 
based on presidential lies, Nixon first and foremost, but he wasn't the first president to lie to the American people about what was going on over there. Um, and, and so there was, so there, there was the Vietnam War that, that, was, that was the issue, but for, but for men like Mickey, whose father was a World War II uh, veteran, there's, there's, there's the other war, too, that is, still, that is still part of the American imagination at that time, because my, my father was a Normandy guy. So uh, part of part of you know the, the haunting of my 322 number is, is I mean it's it's partly me but it's but it's also a son following in the footsteps of of a legitimate war hero. My father made it from from Normandy all the way to Berlin, uh, and here I was, someone um, protesting a war that was that came along um, that that came along when it was when it was my turn. Mm. So yeah, I mean, and uh, I'm sorry, that's a very long answer to a to a to a short question. But you know, it's amazing how many men my age uh, have been similarly haunted. When I was uh, my 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 daughter tried for almost a year to get me my wife and I tickets to uh, uh, to Bruce Springsteen's Broadway show. I don't know if you've seen that or not, Tom. But, I haven't. No. But there, there's a there's a there's a wonderful. I mean, the music is everything you would expect from the boss. It's it's just. It's just glorious, but it's the storytelling that, excuse me, the, it's the storytelling that really wrecks you. And he, and he tells this 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 wonderful story about him and his friends going to the draft board, trying to convince them that they were that they were all crazy, <laughs> you know, so that they wouldn't, so that so that the draft board wouldn't wouldn't think that they were army material, which of course had exactly no effect <laughs> on uh, on them. And and you know, some of them were drafted, um, and some like uh, like Bruce were not. Um, and uh, and and some of them and some of them came home safely, and some of them died. And Springsteen says, uh, "I don't know who died in my place, but somebody did." So that's that kind of that kind of haunting. I think is is the is the partic- is the particular legacy of of uh, of my generation. Mm. And um, and this this book kind of snuck up on me in the, in the sense that, is that I hadn't, it's, this is not a book that I've been thinking about writing for a very long time or anything like that, but suddenly there it was, all of it, uh, all of it at once. So very much related, and, and uh, thank you for, for the, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I think that helps me understand a, a lot. Uh, a related, very much related question, you mentioned earlier, uh, there's a strong theme of fate, you know, chances are, um, yep. the title in this book. Um so the question is: Do you do you believe in destiny? Do we have a destiny? What? How, how much do we control, and how much is fate? Yeah. Well, actually, the last three of my books uh, have all been about the same subject. It's 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 kind of fascinating in a way. I've been mulling this over for a very long time, even before this, even before this novel came along. Um, my last book of long short stories was called Trajectory, and as the title suggests, that had something to do with. With fate and destiny too. It's all four of those stories about are about people who wake up in their fifties, kind of scratching their heads and wondering, "Is this the life that I was supposed to to lead? How did I how did I come here? This wasn't what I planned. Something else has happened in the in the meantime." And then my book of essays was called The Destiny Thief, um, where I where I where I mulled over in kind of nonfiction form some of these things that that puzzled me. And now chances are. Um, you know, my own sense is um, that, 
if somebody, you know, if somebody gave me a hundred lives, and this was just one of them, and then erased the memory of that life, and I got to do it all over again, my sense is that, that, I, would, that I would probably have another 99 different, very, very different outcomes. And probably maybe there might be only one or two in which I was even a, a writer or an artist of, 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 any, of, of any sort. I just, I just don't have any sense that, that, that this life that, I li- that, that I've been fortunate enough to live is the only one out there. I think that there are, um, that there are um, other, um, that there were other possible lives um, um, out, there, out there for me. And sometimes I even have a kind of shadow glimpse of, of what some of those others might have turned out, and they and most of them aren't aren't nearly as blessed as the one that I that I actually uh, that I actually have lived. And it and I've thought a lot about the fact that you know, it, especially when you talk to people who have been blessed in one way or another, people who have been successful or blessed, uh, and you ask them to tell the story of their lives, the story that they tell is very often based on, on free will, that is, those decisions that we make in life, as opposed to chance, which is just pure serendipity, and fate, which also, you know, like genetics, you don't have any control over that. And when successful people tell the story of their lives, basically what they do is ignore fate and they ignore chance and they talk about free will. I did this, I made this decision, this happened, and then I did this, and this happened, and lo and behold, here I am, a self-made man. You know, that's the story, that's the story that they like to tell. And I don't know whether or not that they're aware that it's a lie, but I do know that an awful lot of people born on third base seem to believe that they've hit triples, <laughs> you know. And, um, and an awful lot of people, um, um, strangely enough, who were dealt really, really terrible hands uh, with with very few avenues towards success, strangely enough, blame themselves. You know, they've been dealt this almost unwinnable hand, um, and and yet they're decent people, and they blame themselves, and they say, you know, I should have done this differently, or I should have done that differently. And so we have destinies, but we also have stories. We have we tell ourselves stories about. About the meaning, the, about the meaning of our lives, and we blame ourselves. We blame others. We all, we all know the stories. We all know the stories of, of, um, uh, of, of the guy who's in jail, and you say, why is he? Why are you in jail? And he, and, and he says, well, and, 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 and the guy in jail says, well, the cop never should have come into the convenience store when he did, or I wouldn't have had to shoot him. <laughs> you know, we, we tell these, we tell these twisted stories of our lives. You know, um, you know the story well known now. Oh, I got a I got a small million dollar loan from my father. You know, <laughs> and now look and now look at now look at all the many many millions, even billions, I turned that into. We tell these, we tell these, uh, you know, we tell these outright lies. Uh, I think about um, about our lives, and and tragically, I think many times we believe them. Mm. I was going to ask you, you've already answered it, but uh, I had wondered, and I've observed that uh, the stories we tell ourselves uh, about uh, fate um, kind of do break down along class lines. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think a lot of things break down along class lines, um, which is why I continue to um, I continue to mull about it, write about it. Um, it's, you know, it's funny. One of the one of the writing one of the one of the maxims of writing, of course, is write what you know, and 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 there's a lot of truth to that. And I I, I write a lot about what I know, but clearly I don't know enough, because or I wouldn't be mulling over the same things I was mulling over. You know, thirty, thirty-five years ago, when I broke into writing as a as a as a as a young man, um, here I am. You know, I was what was I in my early thirties um, when Mohawk, or maybe middle thirties, when by the time Mohawk was published. Um, so here I am, thirty-five years later. Think about it. You know, thirty-five years later, I'm basically mulling over the same things that that interested me um, when I was a younger. When I was a, a much younger man, in much the same way that we find an author like like Dickens, you know, you ask, you know, you read all of those Dickens novels, and and if Dickens were alive, and 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 we could ask him, one of the questions we might ask is, what's with all the orphans? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, why why at the end of your life, um, so many books passed Oliver Twist. Why does it seem almost impossible for Dickens to write um, to write a book that did not involve a major character who's an orphan? Uh, and uh, and you think, well, at some point um, he must have felt like one. Mm. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, of course, you never you never resolve, you never you never figure it out. Um, and and that's the good news. Really, I mean, it's it's not a narrowness. It's not a. It's not. It's not that you're wearing as an author, you have blinders on and you can't think of anything else to write about. It's 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 that Dickens and 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 Faulkner and and uh, and uh, Willa Cather and and um, Charlotte Bronte, they they uh, uh, you know were were all haunted by 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 certain obsessions, and we keep. We keep returning to those, um, whether we want to or not. It seems like it sometimes. Does that, does that do you think include all of us? We we have issues that we're dealing with from our youth, or is that just writers? Do you think? Well, certainly writers, um, um, but I think, uh, but I think, I think all of us. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I, I think, I mean, part of it is just that that when we are kids and and, and teenagers. The world is new, and 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 when it's new, we learn it in a slightly different way. I mean, those those early those early things that are imprinted upon the child's brain or the adolescent's brain, because it's so new, it gets imprinted really, really deep. And I think that what happens um, later in life, there's a, there, let's face it, there's a lot of repetition later in life. And so, what happens when it happens to you? Think to yourself, "Well, I've, I've certainly, I've certainly dealt with this before. I saw this coming. It's only happened twenty thousand times to me." And so, the world, the world begins to feel not quite so new. And and what we, and what we learn kind of reinforces um, what we, what we already know, conclusions that we have already come to. But that stuff that happens early. That's a different kind of learning, a different kind of knowledge. We're not just tweaking anymore. You know, past the age of 20 or 25, we're, we're dealing with software. Mm-hmm. Earlier than that, we're talking about hardware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the right. hardware of our lives. Right. Um, 
and and that's what we keep returning to. I think whether we're writers or artists or politicians or or whatever, we're we're kind of in certain respects, um, the you know the early years of our lives, that's our hardwiring. Oh, uh, we just have five or ten minutes left here. I definitely want to. You made an oblique reference to the president, um, and you've you've had this question, I'm sure, before. Uh, some of the characters in your novels are, you know, small town. Uh, you deal with, deal with class issues. Uh, some of the characters in your novels uh, fit the profile of Trump supporters. I wonder. Uh, yeah, they sure do. You uh, they sure do understand what uh, their angst is and why they voted for the president. I do, I do, um, and um, you know, I've talked about this before on NPR. Uh, I I talked about the election. I was. I was invited to talk on National Public Radio uh, the morning after the election, and I agreed to do so when I thought I knew who was going to want, uh, who was going to win, and, and found that I had to go on and talk and, in some ways, um, speak to uh, uh, at least NPR's part of the nation about about what had happened, and um, and um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't speak for 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 uh, Trump voters. I wouldn't say, "Oh, I know why you did that." But I think I do have at least um, minimal insight um, because um, because of where I grew up, um, how I grew up. Um, a lot of my formative years were were um, were uh, when I was working road construction with my father and and all of his friends. Um, and so I know what it's I know what it's work like to work I, I I know what it's like to work with a pen in my hand but I also know what it's like to work with a shovel and I know what it's like to do the kind of hard work that my father and his friends did and to not expect much money and certainly never to be overpaid for anything and to have money worries um, all the time um, and to worry about losing your job and I think that election um, that election, what we said about it was that that it was about jobs, but it was also about work, um, which I take to be the more important issue here, um, is that a lot of angry white men were, were, were concerned about losing their jobs, but they were more concerned about losing their work because it was their work that made them feel like they were part of the fabric of American society that they were worth something. And I certainly saw that in the hometown that I grew up in, where most of that work went away long before it did in the rest of the United States. And I saw what happened to both men and women in tanneries and glove shops, um, who, if you had asked them in 1955 who they were as Americans, they would have been able to tell you that they made gloves in a city that produced most of the, like 90% of the dress the dress gloves worn by people throughout the United States. They would have told you that. They would have told you not about their economics. They would have told you about their work. They would have said, here's, here's what I do as an American. Here's, what I, here's, here's how I connect to the fabric of American society. And, and when all the glove shops closed and tanneries closed down, they not only lost their jobs, they not only lost their income, they lost their sense of who they were as Americans and that they were valuable as Americans. Um, so, yeah, I know, I think I know at least something of what was going on uh, among Trump supporters. And the only, and the objection that I have um, to their anger 
um, is that what they were feeling was legitimate. Um, their loss of work, their loss of their sense of identity was legitimate. What they don't seem to what what they don't seem to grasp, and I wish they would, is that what they were feeling was not new. It was just not new to them. Black-skinned people and brown-skinned people had been feeling this. <laughs> How far back do we need to go? You know, um, uh, to there 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 are large groups of people have who have always felt. Uh, marginalized in America, uh, who have never been sure um, of of what their of what their purpose was, whose whose livelihoods, not only their economic livelihoods, but their but their but their um, their, their sense of themselves as valued Americans. Um, and they say, if, if someone asks, what do you what what is your contribution to America? How do you feel about yourself as an American? There are an awful lot of people out there for a very long time. Um, who um, who who could not have answered that question with optimism? Uh, so I guess that's what I would that's what I would say is is and and those and those people want to build walls. You know, they want America to go back uh, to a time when um, when it wasn't pluralistic, when it, and when when um, white people could be assured of their that their whiteness was 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 um, was some sort of trump card well okay maybe bad choice of words there uh, but um um so yeah i think i think i do know something about um uh, about these folks and i sympathize um un- until uh un- until i don't <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, uh, we're we're coming down near the end of our time. Just one more uh, subject. This uh, earlier in the, our conversation, you said this, among other things, was a novel about uh, secrets and lies. I just want to quote a couple of things that you uh, said in this interview. I've been referencing that really struck me. You said, "If you don't have secrets, you don't have an inner life." Um, and then connecting that with old friends, and the three the three uh, protagonists in the novel are, are very old friends. Uh, you say most people become more skilled at dissembling over time, and our oldest friends knew us before we got good at it. Yeah, yeah, and that's why some of those—that's why some of those friendships are so powerful. And you know, I've always been an optimistic, an optimistic man, and an optimistic writer. Uh, and my optimism has been sorely, sorely challenged over the last decade. Uh, and my work has gotten progressively darker because of what I've seen, uh, and what and what we've all seen, and what we've all witnessed, what we've all. Um, um, lived through, but the optimism of this book, I think, lies in the friendship of these three uh, men, whose friendship is sorely tested um, in this book. Um, they have not shared the secrets of their inner lives, as we sometimes simply cannot. Um, and and because of their love for this girl and for various other reasons, they have not always been completely truthful. But there has never been a point in their lives where these guys haven't had profound affection and, yes, love for each other. And the optimism of this book is, I think, if they're in such as, in such as it is, is that if secrets and lies have the power to utterly destroy our lives, friendship and affection of the sort that these men display for each other is a powerful force that um, you would you do you do well not to not to underestimate because it's it's pretty powerful. 
Well, that's a good place to end uh, end the discussion and uh, added to everything we've been talking about. It's a page-turning mystery as well. So uh, the book is uh, Chances Are. It's the new novel from Richard Russo, uh, who is winner of the uh, Pulitzer Prize, uh, author of Empire Falls and uh, Nobody's Fool and many other books. And uh, Richard Russo will be in Salt Lake City on Friday. Your chance to interact with him. Uh, book reading and signing at the King's English Bookshop. That'll be Friday evening, 7 o'clock, free and open to the public. Richard Russo, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Again, my thanks to uh, Richard Russo. And a note about tomorrow's program. Uh, Imagine a community where workshops, schools, libraries, and churches were all within walking distance. Creating a walkable community is more complex than just crosswalks or sidewalks. We'll talk about it with world-renowned city planner and urban designer Jeff Speck, who's out with a new book called Walkable City Rules. He's my guest tomorrow. Hope you join me then. Set sail for the Caribbean with us on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. We'll visit Kingston Harbor and Montego Bay and dance to the pulsing tropical beat of reggae and other island styles. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for Jamaica, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and heard online at upr.org.